Hello everyone, I hope you all been doing well. As you know, we got another great collection of stories for you this week. What else would there be? But hey, let's get into this. I'm ready to get spooky. Let's drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. How to Perform an Exorcism at 20,000 Feet Written by Kyle Harrison As a traveling missionary, I have seen a lot of things that have connected me to God. The world is a beautiful place filled with all kinds of people working their hardest to serve His glory. But there have been times that my faith has wavered. This incident happened around four years ago, while I was traveling to Jerusalem for the chance to visit the Holy City. Even before I boarded my flight to Israel, I had been dealing with issues that tested me. My mother had been battling cancer for some time and I had taken a short break from my God-given assignment to visit her in my home country of Greece. That was probably a mistake because I saw how the disease was wrecking her body. I had to come to terms with the fact that she wouldn't be on this earth much longer. She would tell me, you mustn't cry, my son. You can't weep for someone who is on their way to visit the Lord. I kept a straight face for her, but inwardly, I was tormented. I was questioning my faith because the prayers that I offered for her well-being were going unanswered. It made little sense to me, because I had seen how God had healed others during my missionary work. Why then was my mother being excluded from his mercy? Wasn't she more righteous than these sinners that had received his miracles? Just as I was gathering my things from the taxi to go inside the airport, my brother gave me a call to tell me that my mom had passed. Even though I thought I was ready for the news, it felt like I had been crushed by a boulder. Suddenly, the world had stopped, and I cursed God. I told my brother that I had to go, and I walked into the airport. I needed to leave and clear my head, and the tour of the Holy Land felt like a chance to reconnect to my spiritual heritage, perhaps even to rekindle my love for God again. Instead, it was a visit from the devil that changed my life on that flight, Perhaps it was because I was still in mourning, but as the flight attendant began to go over safety regulations, I paid no attention to the pale-faced man that brushed right past me. I did notice his expression though. Something in his eyes reminded me of my own inner turmoil. He was carrying a burden, but I had no idea how important that would be until hours later. He was carrying an overhead bag that also bumped against me as he reached his seat. Something jabbed at my side from within the bag, and he mumbled an apology. It felt sharp and cold. The flight attendant had finished up her instructions for us and returned to the front. I settled down and checked my phone one last time. I reviewed pictures of my sweet mother and tried my best to keep it together. When I switched the phone off for the flight, it felt as though I was saying goodbye. The woman next to me squeezed my hand. Father, are you alright? 
she whispered. I slipped my phone into my pocket and gave her a curt nod before forcing a smile. Our plane shook gently as we pushed down the runway and I got a better look at the pale-faced man. As a man of God, I knew it would be wrong to judge, but something felt off about him. He was nervous and fidgety, constantly looking toward his overhead bag. But I was too tired to give it any further thought and instead slipped on the free headphones offered by the flight and turned on some soothing music. My flight would last for another eight hours and I didn't want to bother wasting time, wondering about the plight of someone else when I was already experiencing my own crisis. I was about to close my eyes when I felt someone push past me again. I looked back and saw that it was the man, this time rushing to the bathroom, as though he needed to vomit. Poor guy, must not handle flights very well. The woman beside me had commented. The entire plane shook and I grabbed my seat, feeling queasy as well. That might be me in a few minutes, I admitted. If you need anything, I'm a registered nurse, she offered me, her kind blue eyes peering into my own. For some reason, she reminded me of my mother again, but I knew that it was just because of my recent loss. I'm sure I'll be fine. I told her as I just heard the most horrific retching sound from the tiny restroom. She frowned as we both listened to the man spilling his guts out, and then decided to get up and offer aid. Sir, are you alright? She asked, tapping on the door softly. Go away, he screamed back. I'm going to get one of the flight attendants. Can you keep an eye on him? She asked. I really didn't want to get involved, but before I could decline, she was already headed to the front of the plane. So I casually stood up and leaned against the opposite restroom, watching the door and waiting for the man to come back out. He kept vomiting for at least another five minutes. Each sound he made was worse than the last. It honestly gave me the impression that he was dying. And then there was a noise that I don't think I'll forget. It was this deep, guttural growl. The kind you might hear from a fearsome predator. Followed by the sound of bones breaking. Sir, are you alright in there? I asked as I knocked on the door. Leave me, he shouted back. I looked down and saw little slivers of blood sliding out from under the door and decided to try to unlock the door. For all I knew, he could be attempting something much worse. I looked up to see the attendant arrive with the safety key and she announced that she would be opening the door. I'll never forget what we saw inside. The man was hunched over the toilet, clearly in distress and barely breathing. His mouth and cheeks were covered in blood and some sort of brown mucus. There was a string of a black slimy goop connecting his tongue to the toilet. Inside the pool of water, I saw what looked like a baby-sized turd filled with shards of glass. It smelled like something had died. The broken slivers of glass had come from the mirror, and it was clear from his scarred arms and face that my guess about him harming himself had been right. Immediately, the attendant took a step back and then asked the nurse, 
Do you have any medical equipment? She nodded, pointing toward her overhead bag. As we both kept her eyes locked on the man. I had never seen anything this severe before, and it shook me into a petrifying fear. The whole plane suddenly felt very claustrophobic as I realized whatever virus he had could be contagious. And then just as the nurse had reached for the bag, the man moved like a lightning bolt. I saw his eyes turn a dark blood red, and he screamed like a banshee. He grabbed one of the broken pieces of glass that had been lodged in his face and punctured the nurse in the neck. The entire third class suddenly erupted in chaos. And then he reached for his own bag and pulled something out. It must have been the same object that had jabbed me in the side earlier. It looked like some sort of dark statue, the kind you might see in a museum for Assyrian cultures. And suddenly I felt an overwhelming sense of dread fall over me. This was not just a man dealing with a disease of his body. His soul was infected with evil. I realized as he immediately smashed the idol on the floor of the third class cabin. As the dark statue broke apart, this ethereal mist emerged with a rasping noise, and I found myself immediately feeling dizzy. I was not prepared for this, but my only instinct was to protect all of the passengers. Everyone move to business class now, I shouted, as I reached for the nurse and helped her to her feet. The man was not moving at all. Instead, he was crawling around on his hands and feet like a wild animal, licking up the broken pieces of the idol as everyone began to flee to the next cabin. We need something to block the door. I shouted as the last passenger ran past me, and I slid the partition door between the cabin's clothes. I knew that would not hold the stranger for long, though. One of the attendants brought a food cart and we shoved it against the door to block the man in third class, but I still didn't feel safe. Behind me in business class, almost all the passengers were standing up, trying to get a look at the scene beyond the partition. The injured nurse started to gasp her breath, and I focused my attention on her. My bag, she whispered as she tried to hold her hand firmly on her windpipe. Lay her down, I told a few of the people standing close by. Just as they were going to, we heard a loud clang against the door, and I saw the stranger was clawing at the glass. His facial expressions were constantly changing, from desperation to anger to confusion and then back to rage. Please, you, you don't understand. I'm not in control, he screamed. I knew precisely what we were dealing with. The only problem was that I had no clue how to handle this evil. One of the passengers was apparently reading my mind and asked, Pastor, ain't you going to do something? I hated to admit my weaknesses, but I knew. I couldn't lie to these innocent people. I've only ever seen others perform the rituals. I have no idea how to stop it. I said looking down at my hands. I was visibly shaking. It made me feel so helpless. The emotion from my mother's passing had pushed me over the edge as I sat down and gripped the chair, not even daring to look the passengers in the eye. A few of them stood idly for a moment, perhaps thinking I might overcome my grief quickly. 
and then the man on the other side of the glass started spitting violently against it, shouting the most obscene things he could as he tried to get through. One man, dressed in what looked like casual business wear, reached up his bag and unzipped it quickly to pull out a firearm. More people began to panic, but he shouted frantically, I'm an air marshal. Everyone please stand back. He aimed his weapon at the man on the other side of the glass as more people shouted and shoved themselves out of the way. I stood up, blocking his path as I held the food cart in place. That's just going to make the demon angrier, I argued. And what do you expect us to do then? Sit here peacefully while it tears this plane apart, he said, shoving me aside. I'm not going to die today, father. He fired a single shot that broke through the glass and the man went flying backward in the aisle. Some of the crowd cheered, but I knew this wouldn't be a happy ending. Instead, they heard the man choking on his own blood as the strange mist filled his throat and entered his lungs, consuming him and making him convulse. His bones were cracking and snapping as he bent into impossible shaves, and then he lay still in the passengers cheered again. It was a short-lived celebration. Outside, we heard the rumbling of thunder, and I pushed the crowd out of the way to get a better look. There were dark clouds outside, lightning and thunder dancing across the sky. We had unleashed something unholy. Suddenly, the corpse began to shake again, this time even more violently than before. The unseen force was pulling it up, as a puppet master might his marionette doll twitching it and tugging at it to stand. The lifeless ghoul was now standing there in the aisle, its dead eyes staring into our souls, hungry for flesh. Mahalisu Incardo Chalaza, it shrieked. At the same time, lightning struck the plane and the lights flickered. The ghoul burst through the door, the food cart flung toward the crowd as though they were ants being pushed aside by the kick of a boot. The dangerous demon gave me a wicked grin, tilting the neck of the stranger toward me and pointing his long pale finger toward me and cooing. You shall all be taken to hell. The air marshal tried to fire a few more shots toward the ghast, but it was a fruitless effort. The bullets went through him as though his body were now shredded cheese. His only goal seemed to be getting to the woman that tried to help him. It occurred to me that while he was distracted, I might have a way to reach my own bag. I had little to stop the undead creature except perhaps some holy water and a sacrament or a cross, but it was the best that I could do under these circumstances. I crouched on and watched as the demon moved down the aisle, flinging aside the passengers as he reached the bleeding nurse. He looked like he wanted to devour her alive. I took my chances and made a dash towards my bag. I managed to climb over the upside-down food cart and get to the partition door, just as the demonic man crawled over top the nurse's injured body and began to lick her face. Your skin shall serve a higher purpose now, Madre. The demon bellowed as the lights continued to flicker. The plane was beginning to shake even more as I realized turbulence could knock us out of the sky. Did this beast of hell hope to kill us all? Just as I was grabbing at my bag, I fell backward, being jostled around the cabin as the plane started to descend at an alarming rate. 
An overhead announcement came on as I heard alarms blare as well. Attention passengers, we are making an emergency landing as soon as possible. Please buckle up. And the demon was breathing black wind into the woman. Her own eyes started rolling into the back of her head as the two bodies began to mesh together. Their skin was fusing the way two melting candles might. It was horrifying to behold, but I didn't waver from my plan and I opened my bag, taking out the crucifix that I had brought with me. I held it close to me as I turned to see that now the mangled bodies were crawling toward the roof of the plane. Rest thou veris, Jaral. Human, you will die here in this place and meet your mother in hell. The demon shrieked as it saw the holy item that I carried. Both of its mouths were twisting together like grinding gears, as I said the most heartfelt prayer that I could think of. My mother was blessed to walk with saints, and she would cast you out with only a mustard seed of faith. I stabbed. But it was hardly enough to do anything for this prince of the underworld. He lunged toward me, the cross burning his misshapen limbs, but his power was overwhelming and what little strength I had. The holy relic skid under the next row of seats as I felt the plane rattle louder and louder. I was close to losing oxygen from the rush as passengers scrambled to try to find safety from the demon. It was pulling its own spine out from between the fused bodies, jabbing it against my side as it taunted me. You are a weak, pathetic man who hides behind the shroud of false idols. The glory of hell will swallow you whole, it said with both of its mouths. I thought about my mother and the likelihood of seeing her in heaven soon, but I could also hear her voice, urging me not to give up. There was still so much that I needed to do here on earth, and that was what compelled me to close my eyes and offer another sincere prayer. This one wasn't for me, but for the souls of those on this flight. Let the Lord guide them, I said. And then I lunged for the emergency exit door and I shoved the handle open. At this height, it should have never budged. I knew very well that they were sealed and only after landing would they release. But I was compelled to give it a try. The pressure in the cabin instantly pushed the demon beyond the plane. He got absorbed in the black clouds that were around us. And then, with this newfound strength, I managed to pull the door closed. As it locked in place, I drew in a breath and watched the clouds begin to clear. And then the passengers erupted with a cheering, this time for me and my bravery. I went and retrieved my cross and put it around my neck. Glory goes to the Lord for offering me his power for this trial. I admitted as I sat down, my hands covered with blisters. I knew God had to have helped me to face this evil. And as I closed my eyes and relaxed for the remainder of the flight, I saw my mother smiling at me from beyond the grave. My test of faith was over. The evil hadn't won. When we arrived at Jerusalem, I asked the flight crew and passengers to keep this as quiet as possible. No praise should be given except to God for carrying us through, I had told them. But since then, I've heard a few stories spread, and often there is another element that apparently I wasn't aware of, even though I should have known it. The marshal claimed another man was standing by the door, 
clad in white and with a double-edged sword at his belt. And it's that image which keeps me close to the Lord even now. And I know that with evil still out there, I must remain vigilant. A stowaway is hiding on the International Space Station. He isn't one of us. Written by J. Groob. I awoke to a distant tapping sound, which stopped a few moments after I opened my eyes. Beneath that noise was the familiar reverberating hum that I had grown accustomed to. But the tapping sound was unsettling and new. The International Space Station was constantly filled with noise. The most prominent, a droning hum, reminiscent of being trapped inside a powerful vacuum cleaner. The blinds were closed and darkness permeated every inch of my phone booth-sized living space. Blinking my eyes a few more times, I looked at the glowing face of my watch and saw that it was still early, not yet 5 a.m. We operated on a 24-hour day, despite the fact that we had witnessed 16 sunrises in that span of time. If not for these simulated days, you would lose your mind from perpetual jet lag. Our days began at 6 a.m. and finished at 9 p.m. The long shifts, symbolic of the workload, to be done in the short amount of time we each had aboard the ISS. Our days were broken down into five-minute increments. Our schedules consisted mostly of experiments and associated documentation, mealtimes, video chats, and personal hygiene. Everything was meticulously scheduled into five-minute chunks, even our bathroom breaks. Closing my eyes, I tried to go back to dreaming. My sleeping bag hovered in the air, held down by a strap so it didn't float away in zero gravity and so that it didn't bump into other people. With 10 crew members on board, real estate was at a premium. The space station was built for six, but there had been as many as 13 people aboard at one time. Every warm body brings a share of food, toiletries, and clothing, supplies which take up precious space. Which is why it was so obvious to me when a stowaway insidiously came aboard the ISS. Someone lurking in the shadows who shouldn't be there. An 11th crew member, unaccounted for. I would see them out of the corner of my eye, like a mirage in the desert only for them to disappear a second later. Always just a glimpse, never right in front of me. The thing was clever and extremely good at disguising itself. 
like an octopus. It blended with the colors of the walls, and it fit itself into vents and different hidden places. This is all difficult to believe, I'm sure, but it is true. When I told the crew, I expected them to be incredulous, but instead, it sounded like everyone had quietly begun to notice the same things. Movement in the shadows, rustling sounds, and missing items. Food and water, clothing and other more personal items. At first, we thought that it was a rogue crew member, a kleptomaniac cosmonaut with a penchant for taking too many rations and stealing dirty clothing. But after several crew meetings and weeks of careful observation, it became obvious that was not the case. None of us were stealing the supplies. We were sure of that much. Tap, tap, tap. The sound came again, with it a knocking noise, like a creaking pipe releasing pressure on a cold night. Hairs stood up on the back of my neck as I listened to the noise reverberating throughout the cabin. It was familiar, but I couldn't place it. Getting out of my sleeping bag, I began to head towards that sound. Floating out of the tranquility node and guiding myself from handhold to handhold in the darkness. The hygiene in sleeping quarters were quiet, aside from the occasional sound of snoring. Tap, tap, tap. The noise came again, and I tried to stay as silent as possible as I rounded a corner and went left. I continued to propel myself along through the American laboratory module hovering past the expensive equipment and specimen containers. I wondered vaguely if the sound was coming from the Japanese laboratory. It seemed to be emanating from ahead and to the left, but no one was scheduled to be in there at this time. Opening the airlock door, I entered Kibo. The Japanese laboratory was empty despite the sounds that I just heard coming from inside. Knock, knock, knock. Another noise from behind me now. I turned around, dripping sweat which rolled off my temple in beads and floated upwards at the ceiling. My heart drumming madly in my chest. I put my feet against the walls to push myself off, like a swimmer in a pool of water. I began to flow backwards towards the entrance of Kibo. Echoes could be funny in the ISS and I told myself that it was fine. The noise, whatever it was, was just coming from the European laboratory module, the Columbus. That was where it had been coming from all along. I just misjudged the sound. So, I began to float over that way, trying to ignore my anxiety and nerves, 
trying to forget about the voice in my head, saying that none of this made sense, that none of this was normal. What if someone woke up right now, I wondered. Would they suspect me of being the one stealing the food and supplies? Quite possibly. I tried to think of what to say if anyone had found me awake and decided that I would tell them I just wanted to get a bit of early exercise. This was reasonable enough since we had to spend two hours per day working out in order to prevent muscle and bone loss and to prevent fluid from seeping up into the subcutaneous tissue around our skulls. These space snuffles, we call them. Either way, despite what it might look like, I needed to see what was making that noise and to find out if it had anything to do with our mystery stowaway. Suddenly, the tapping noise had stopped and instead, there is a sound like fingernails scraping across the chalkboard, squealing louder and higher by the second. The sound retreated from beneath me, back the way that I had come towards the tranquility node. I pulled myself as quickly as I could across node 2, where our life support systems and electrical equipment were. Beneath me, these sound like claws rendering steel continued to scrape against the hull beneath the space station and I wondered what sort of damage was being done and what could be causing such a horrifying sound. Others were beginning to wake up and I could see lights turning on in the tranquility node as I swam through the air in zero gravity, making my way through the U.S. laboratory. As I did, I decided to take a look out through the observation window, trying to make out what was causing that horrifying sound. I hit the control switch, and the blind covering the window beneath me opened up. Staring out through the glass, I saw the stars and the earth below us, but then something else as well much closer. One of my fellow crew members was out there, frozen in the vacuum of space. His shocked visage scraped past the window, making that sound like broken fingernails on a chalkboard. I can't say his name here, so I'll refer to him as David. Some sort of black tentacle was wrapped around his throat and face. It was as dark as the night sky, trailing off invisible into the distance, like a huge black squid. The thing was dragging him away from the ship, causing that tapping sound and the scraping sound as his frozen corpse banged and dragged against the space station's hull. As I thought about this, the black tentacles dug spikes deeper into his blue-tinged neck, and he began to drift off, disappearing out of sight. A moment later, he was gone, 
like a bad nightmare I had just woken up from and wished only to forget. If only I could. What are you looking at out there? A voice asked from the other end of the US laboratory, right ahead of me. Another crew member had woken up from all the commotion, I thought, and now I would have to somehow try and explain what I had just seen. It's David, he's... Tears were welling up in my eyes, turning into floating bubbles and I trailed off, unsure how to continue. And then I looked up to see the same man who had just died outside, in the freezing vacuum of space. David, right there in front of me. He was alive and well, hovering in front of me like a ghost. David? Yeah, what's wrong with you? Man, what was that noise anyways? Did you find our stowaway? The smile in his face told me everything that I needed to know. His skin seemed to shift and squirm, bulges appearing like large insects tunneling beneath the surface. But I had no time to confront him, as others began to emerge from the sleep quarters moments later, asking why we were up so early. I shook my head slowly, still not sure if I should believe my eyes. Uh, there is a sound, a tapping sound. The more that I thought about it, the more it all seemed like a dream. Had I been asleep when I thought I was awake, was it possible for one to sleepwalk in space, or to sleep levitate? No, I shook that feeling off quickly. I knew what I had seen. Maybe we should call it in, find out if something happened, said David. If you're sure that's what you heard. I'm sure. Everyone agreed and we notified Mission Control. They informed us after a full diagnostic check that all systems were operating normally. Only one strange thing had occurred overnight while we were sleeping. The exit hatch used for our space walks had been opened by someone and then closed a moment later. Just long enough to dust somebody outside, I guessed. Nobody admitted to it, leaving us all slightly uneasy. Oddly though, afterwards our rationing problems were solved. Food stopped going missing after that and we had just enough of everything for ten people again, as if the invisible stowaway had just disappeared, or as if he had gotten rid of someone else and taken their place. I can't prove anything, but I'll have to keep a very close eye on David when he gets back to Earth. I'm not sure what else I can do besides monitor him. Whatever he is, he's dangerous, and there might be more of him out there. Who knows, they might already be here, living among us, and there are more living up above in our atmosphere, like the one who took David. Body snatchers, skinwalkers, doppelgangers, whatever you want to call them, you've all heard about them before. The tales of them are endless, and you can read all about them if you look through these pages at the stories of others who have survived encounters with them. 
I get the feeling that they're all one and the same, or that they're somehow related. So, keep your guard up, don't be fooled, and most importantly, don't let them inside. By then, it's already too late. I was an assassin for the agency. I eliminated the Inhuman. Written by, with, bite. I was a cop once. A dang good one. I joined the force when I was 21 and rose fast through the ranks. Until I was heading a new task force dedicated to fighting organized crime. We were clinical about who we targeted. We went in hard on raids and we were a success. One spring morning though, my world collapsed. I was in my office signing off paperwork when two men I did not recognize walked in. They wore suits and not uniforms. They showed me their IDs, the badge no cop wanted to see, internal affairs, and then they arrested me. I was charged under Statute 18, USC Section 201, with receiving a gratuity. $250,000 had been deposited in my bank account, and there was no way that was anything other than dirty money, in their opinion. They bought you. One of them said that his partner took out a set of handcuffs. There's no need for those, I told him. I was aware of a lot of eyes on me, officers that I trusted and respected, a few that I believed felt that way towards me. I was desperate not to be walked out of the station in handcuffs. I was a proud man back then. They cuffed me anyway. This is a setup, you know that, I told them. They said nothing. Just led me out into a waiting car. Six months later, I was found guilty and given a custodial sentence and discharged from the forest. As I was taken from court, I thought my life had reached rock bottom. It turned out my nightmare was only just beginning. As a former police officer, I should have been kept apart from the general population, but that didn't happen. I chose not to share the details of what was done to me save that it was beat up pretty bad. After years of enduring this, the man who was released from prison was unrecognizable to the young, brave idealist who had signed up to make the city he lived in a better place. I was broken and angry and soon living on the streets. Winter was beginning to bite. Although I was sleeping in doorways on scavenged cardboard boxes, I slept better than I had inside. I was not a target anymore, an object of loathing. In the morning, I would find a public restroom and then go through trash cans out of the backs of fast food joints to find scraps to eat. This was when the agency had first contacted me. I did not know that then. All I knew was that there was a man watching me. I was picking dirt off of a half-eaten cheeseburger and my main fear was that he would try to take it off me. He started to approach me. I bared my teeth, decided that he would have to fight me. As he came closer, 
I could see that he was wearing a plain-looking business suit under a gray raincoat. He was bald and his cheeks were pitted with acne scars. He had clearly noted my threatening expression and held out his hands in a I-don't-want-any-trouble kind of way. No easy there, he said. I'm a friend. I had stuffed the remains of the burger into my mouth when he spoke, so my reply was pretty muffled. I don't have any friends. He looked pretty sanguine about this, nodded, and said, Well, fair enough. What if I was to say that I'm someone who can help you? I don't want your help, I snarled. Not even if I showed you a picture of the man I will pay you to kill. He smiled when he said this and took a photograph from his pocket, held it out so I could see it in the fading light. Something inside of me started to burn. I recognized this man. He was the crime boss who would frame me by paying money into my bank account. I had uncovered this privately in the time between my arrest and the trial, but no one wanted to listen to me. I knew, though. I knew what he had done to me. He deserves to die slowly and painfully, as bad as it can get. But why should I clean him off the face of the earth? I asked. The man in the plain business suit shrugged. Revenge, he replied in a calm voice, as if he was discussing a car loan with me. And because I'll pay you $5,000. I stared at him, wiped stale cheese off of my lips. I didn't ask who he was. I didn't ask how he knew I would want to take revenge of this man. I didn't ask any more questions. The fire which had begun in me was already out of control. I'm in, I said. And that was it. The man in the plain business suit asked me to follow him. We moved through back streets from which I caught glimpses of busy roads. Men and women going home after another day at work. Taxis dropping off people going to see a show. You know, ordinary life rushing by. Oblivious to the two men halting outside a door. There is no number, no sign. The building that we stood in front of looked derelict to me. The man in the plain business suit took out a key and ushered me inside. It was dark. Broken furniture littered the floor. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a rat scurrying away. The man knelt over, lifted a floorboard. There was a gun hidden there, ammunition too. I hope you haven't forgotten how to use one of these, he said as he gave me the weapon. It was a cold, hard weight in my hand. Oh, I remember, I told him. He nodded. Good. And then he told me where the man I was going to kill would be in an hour's time. I didn't want to wait that long. The pressure of all the years I had lost in prison felt unbearable. I wanted to go find the man there and then, press the barrel against his skin and pull the trigger. The man in the plain business suit continued. After you're done, go to the central train station, East Street entrance. There's a locker number 326 with a bank card for an account that will be activated when the kill is confirmed. He walked towards the door. See you later.
He said, and with that, the man in the plain business suit was gone. I took a deep breath and stepped out into the night. And the address that I had been given was a dive bar in a shady part of town. And the dealers and the ladies on the street corners ignored me. I clearly couldn't afford any of their services. I walked into the bar. The man that I was going for was in a corner table. His date, a blonde, was made up to the nines and at least 40 years younger than him. Once upon a time, I had vowed to put this man behind bars, illegally, following due process and by the letter of the law. I raised the gun, aimed and fired. A headshot. And then a second to make sure. There is a moment of perfect stillness then. The man looked wide-eyed with surprise, but the only thing that he would be seeing from now on was hellfire. His day began to scream. Well, so much for peace and quiet. I walked back out of the bar, threw the gun in the gutter. I wasn't worried about anyone chasing after me. I wasn't worried about being caught. I felt numb. I don't remember making my way to the train station, but once I was there, it was easy street. The locker opened without a key and I found a bank card as promised, and a slip of paper with a pin number. I didn't recognize the name on the card but figured that would not be a problem, and there were clothes as well, clean jeans and boots, a t-shirt and a leather jacket. I went to the restroom, strip washed and got changed. You did good. I spun around at the sound of the voice, reached for the gun that had been in my pocket, but I had ditched the gun, didn't even have the same pocket. Those trousers were screwed up and dumped in the restroom bin. I looked at the man in the plain business suit. I did what I said I would. I told him and I headed for the exit. I still didn't know who he was or how he knew so much about me. But I was wondering by now. I felt exposed on the back foot. And I did not like it one bit. I was going to get out of there. Leave this dangerous stranger behind. There's more, he said. More if you want it. The feed doubles with every kill. And there are bonuses. I can give you a new identity, a passport. It can match your new bank account or you can have a different name. Your choice. And looking back, it was. I had $5,000. Enough for a bus ticket to the other side of the country. Enough to live off while I got an off-the-books job. But there was something about his offer. One more job, I thought. That gives me 15 k I take the new ID and then I disappear under my terms with a whole new world of options. I turned to look at him. One more job, I said. Ten grand in my account. He smiled. Deal. This time, the picture that he showed me was of a stranger. He told me that this man ran a drugs factory. The products were low-grade, often fatal. He was scum. Someone who didn't have the right to breathe. A few hours later, I shot the drug maker from close range while he slept. And then I went to check my bank account. The money was there. As I stood at the ATM, I did the math. Fifteen still wasn't enough. Not for a clean break. 
I went for a drink, a classy place. I flirted with a waitress and got a little drunk. After an hour or so, the man in the plain business suit walked in. He took a seat, ordered a whiskey sour mocktail. Are we going to make it three out of three? He asked me. Sure, I answered, but I have some questions first. Fire away. He chuckled at his own joke. I took another drink and said, So you seem to know a lot about me, about my past and how to find me, but I know nothing about you. You could start there, maybe. Are you a one-man band, an entrepreneur? No, I'm an employee with a large organization. It is referred to by those who need to know as the agency. And before you ask... We predate and have nothing to do with a certain bunch of central intelligence amateurs. The agency is publicly funded but via accounts that never see the light of day. And your organization's purpose is... His drink arrived. He raised his glass and a toast and said, Our organization. You're on the payroll now, remember? I did not clink glasses and just sat and stared. Unperturbed, he took a sip and continued. We uphold order, but to do so, we need to operate away from the law. I cut in. By executing. Not really, he replied. Those two were an induction. The proper work begins tonight. So what do you want me to do? I asked. I want you to kill a dead man. We had finished our drinks. I picked up the bill and we returned to his office. There were no rats this time, but the decor was still trashed. It was dark outside and darker in there. My breath, frosted in the cold air, was the only sign of life. He took a file out of a safe set into the wall and camouflaged by obscene spray-painted graffiti. He handed it over and as I flicked through it, taking in the color headshot of a man in his 50s on page 1, he began to explain. The dead man was a scientist. He was working on an experimental program to improve longevity. To make people live longer, I asked. He raised an eyebrow. Not exactly. The program was ethically in the gutter and was meant to remain hidden. However, the object of your next assignment got greedy. He decided to sell this word to a foreign bidder and took a number of samples with him from the laboratory. He faked his own death before he did this in the hope that we wouldn't notice his actions. An act that was completely in vain. Though his staged funeral was rather touching and the finger buffet at his wake was excellent. So you know where he is, I said. He nodded and gave me an address and a new gun. New bullets too. Before I set off, I had another question on my mind. What if the press finds out about this program? The public? The press, the public, he said scornfully. They never will because everyone outside of senior management who knows about it will be eliminated, he said calmly. Apart from us, of course. He added with a smile that chilled me down to the marrow. I had nothing else to say, but he was not done. There is the possibility the scientist will not be alone, he said. If that's the case, 
contact me immediately for further instructions on this. He threw over a mobile phone. It had to have been cutting edge about 30 years ago. I looked at it disdainfully and then asked him, You want me to use this brick to call you? It is old technology, he replied. Using a network that everyone else thinks was shut down decades ago, and as such goes unnoticed. So yes, call me on it. With his instructions over, he walked out of the door. Scowling, I followed, out into a night that felt even darker and colder than it had before. My intel was that the scientist was holed up in an old hospital. A display on the chained-up entrance showed an artist's impression of the sophisticated apartment's plan for the site. As I clambered over the fence, I really couldn't see it. Shattered glass lay everywhere, and cracks rose through the walls. I crept inside as quietly as the shards would allow. A strip light in the ceiling still flickered, and I could hear the steady drip of water somewhere in the distance. And voices. I crouched down. There were figures in a room to my left, so the scientist was not alone. I took out the phone. As instructed, I would call this information in. Struggling with the clunky buttons, I made it through the menu, then the address book, and then the agency contact. I pressed call, then I went straight to voicemail, on speakerphone. Who's there? A voice called from inside of the room. No doubt alerted by the recorded message blaring from the mobile. I swore, took out my gun and shot the man who walked out into the corridor in the chest. He crumpled to a heap. Breathing rapidly, I went over to IDM. Thankfully, it was the man in the file. Job done. Kind of. Because there were more people emerging from the room. There were six of them, and they moved as slowly and certainly as if they weren't sure how to walk. Their clothes were filthy, but their faces had a strange, shiny quality to them. Their arms were reaching out. They were stumbling on, getting ever closer. The hum of the answer phone recording ended, and the voice of the man in the plain business suit came through. Sit, rap. I'm face to face with a bunch of freaks. I shouted back an answer. Oh, please don't be so crude. The man in the plane and business suit said on the phone. They're second generation zombies. Second generation what? I exclaimed. The risen dead. The shadow government has a number of zombie-centered initiatives. The individuals that you are encountering were liberated from the laboratory by the man that you were sent to kill. They were part of a program that aimed to create longer-lasting and fresher zombies. They were being treated with preservatives and had been coated in an airtight layer of synthetic skin. It's very exciting. Are you out of your freaking mind? I told him. The things, these zombies, plus, were now only feet away. Sweat ran down my face and my guts churned. I had known fear in my life, but never like this. This was wrong. It was inhuman, evil. Get back. I yelled and raised my gun. I had to get on top of this situation and fast. Their eyes were empty of everything but hate. I fired. The shot caught the nearest creature in its neck. It did not flinch, but a hole appeared in its skin, 
and moments later the stench hit me. The foul, nauseating odor of decay. It must have been building up under the layer of synthetic skin. I fired again but I was shaking too badly to get a kill shot and this time it hit the cheek. A new red appeared in the thing's skin and more rancid smelling gas was released. And still it came. It and its dead walking kin. I staggered backwards, tried desperately to steady my aim, and then fired six shots. Six foreheads shattered and the things fell to their knees. I stood over them to make sure. The air was thick with the smell of their flesh, which I can now see had continued to decay under their shells of synthetic skin, despite whatever preservatives they had been fed in the lab. Their bodies were a putrid, rotting mess. I bent doubled and vomited. On the other end of the mobile, the man in the plain suit was shouting, Have you eliminated all the evidence? Do you require me to dispatch assistance to deep clean the site? I dropped the phone and ground it into fragments under my boot. What I required was to get out of there, to get away from the man in the plain business suit and his whole freaking agency. But how, I thought, as I kept to the back streets, as I scanned the walls for CCTV and the skies for surveillance drones. There must be satellites as well, I figured unseen by the naked eye. The agency had eyes everywhere, that much had become clear, and by trying to break free of them, I was in their sights. 48 hours had passed since then. I am sharing this information now in the hope that putting it in the public domain will shift the odds in my favor. Call it a preemptive strike, or a last throw of the dice. I have no idea what will happen. All I know for sure is that I am desperate and I am alone. And that all I can do is keep moving and somehow try and survive. Stay out of Yosemite National Park. Something came with the storm. Written by Human Gravy. Nothing could have prepared me for what happened. Not the hundreds of hours of classroom learning. All the practical training exercises in the world were for nothing. A squadron of fighter jets might have stood a chance, but I doubt it. I encountered an unstoppable force of nature six years ago, like a tsunami or a volcano eruption. If you're caught in its path, you're done for. Lucky for me, I survived. It was sheer luck that I did. This is a warning. Stay out of Yosemite National Park. Six years ago, I was a mounted patrol ranger. On that day, Buckley, my horse, and I were out on patrol near Tuolumne Meadows when I noticed a man approaching us in the distance. He waved his arms at us frantically and collapsed to the ground. He clutched his chest, struggling to catch his breath. His mouth was wide open as he gasped for air. I thought that he might have been having an asthma attack. I immediately noticed blood on his shirt as we came closer but he didn't appear to be wounded. He cried out for help as I jumped off Buckley and went to see if there was anything that I could do while 
I radioed her for medical assistance. Before he could catch his breath, the man incoherently told me something about his son being injured and something about a tour group. I told him to concentrate on catching his breath so he could tell me what was happening clearly. Once he could speak, he introduced himself as Greg and told me what happened with this tour group. Honestly, I couldn't believe it until I had experienced it for myself. He said they had been on a guided tour in the woods nearby, and everything was fine until there was a series of explosions among the tour group. Greg said that his son's cell phone had exploded in his pocket, and his wife's digital camera had blown to pieces inside the carrying case. Everyone's electronic devices had blown, including the tour guide's radio. He also mentioned that a man had collapsed on the spot and remained unresponsive. Of course, his main concern was for his son. He said that shards from the phone were lodged in his leg, and he had suffered serious burns. They tried to tend to the wounds before he came running for help. I relayed the information back to base, requesting medical assistance on my position once Greg led me back to the injured group. While I didn't like to ride double on Buckley, time was of the essence. Greg was far too exhausted to continue on foot. The tour group couldn't have been too far away anyway if he had made it to me. Buckley could handle the weight, and we needed to get there as soon as possible. He likely would have died of a heart attack if I hadn't given him a ride. Perhaps that would have been a mercy compared to how he died later. We rode alongside the stream, heading directly for the tree line in the distance. The path was familiar, a popular destination for a moderate hike. Greg showed me where to go. As we came closer to the trees, I felt a rising warmth on my side, exactly where my radio was attached to my belt. Remembering what Greg had told me earlier about the electronics, I immediately reached down and removed the radio from my holster. It felt like it had been left out under the sun for hours. It was so hot that it burned the palm of my hand, and I dropped it to the side. Upon hitting the ground, it sparked before it exploded. Buckley got startled at the sound and he barked. I comforted him as best as I could while charging ahead. The further into the woods that we went, Buckley became more agitated. He bucked hard, nearly tossing Greg and me off of him. It wasn't like Buckley to not follow commands. He had been trained for service since he was a colt. The further I tried to force him to continue, the more he fought until I decided to leave him behind. Buckley fought like crazy when I tried to tie him to a tree. There wasn't much that I could do against the horse if he was dead set on leaving. In a last ditch effort... I tried to pull him, and the reins had slipped from my hand. Buckley turned back in the direction that we had come from, and disappeared into the woods. He had run back to the stable like he was trained to do. Admittedly, this left me feeling shaken. As we trekked on through the woods, Greg asked if I had any ideas on what was happening, and I didn't have an answer for him. Buckley getting spooked, I could understand. Something unnerved him. Greg and I couldn't sense it, but Buckley could feel it from the moment that we had entered those woods. 
Exploding electronics wasn't something that we were taught about in training. As I said earlier, nothing in the world could have prepared me for what came that day. Nothing. When I made myself known, I was immediately ambushed by several tourists. They all spoke at once, requesting help for their loved ones. Being swarmed by everyone asking questions and pleading for assistance, it didn't help with the situation. Most of the uninjured sustained burns and lacerations from what I could see. What really worried me was the unresponsive man Greg had mentioned earlier. Through the crowd, I saw a woman sitting off to the side with a thousand-yard stare in her eyes. She sat against a tree alone, next to a heavyset man face down on the ground. I insisted on attending to the man who clearly wasn't moving or showing any signs of life. From what I could tell, he wasn't even breathing. I ran over to the man and checked for a pulse while asking his companion if she felt okay. She didn't respond, and I could see why. There was no pulse. The man was dead. Falling back on my training, I immediately went to start chest compressions. I reached underneath the man's side to flip him over, and my hands were immediately met with warmth and wetness. When I turned him over, I immediately jumped in surprise. My hands were covered in blood. The entire left side of the man's upper body was missing. Pieces of wire and metal surrounded the mangled meat of the wound. At the confirmation that her companion was indeed dead, the woman wailed so loudly that everyone turned their attention to her. She said only one word between her sobs and screams, which I understood. Pacemaker. Seeing a casualty, I called out for someone to hand me something to cover the man's face. No one moved or made a noise aside from the woman grieving her dead companion. It was here that I noticed the absolute silence surrounding us. Usually, there are signs of life all around us making noise. Birds chirping, bugs buzzing, frogs croaking. I realized that we were in more danger than we knew. It was silent around us because the animals had either run away, as Buckley had, or they remained quiet to hide from what had scared them. Whatever was happening, we needed to get everyone out of the woods quickly. I commanded the non-injured to assist the wounded and help them start walking out of the woods. One of the women in the group immediately asked why I didn't just radio for help, and I told her that my radio had blown, and we needed to get out of here as soon as possible. If you've ever done anything in life with a group of people, you'll understand that getting them to follow directions is nearly impossible. One person wants to fight back on anything you tell them because they don't respect authority. Another person yells at that person to comply, and those two start a fight. You have another person who starts doing their own thing, and you have others following them, and groups split off into other groups and do whatever they want. In this case, we didn't even get the chance to start fighting with each other. As I tried to get everyone moving, a blast of lightning ripped across a blackening sky above us. It struck a tree only a few hundred yards away, and then the wind picked up, lifting leaves and dust and debris through the air. The weather report for the week was clear, sunny skies with no chance of precipitation. 
This development unnerved me as I looked up at the clouds overhead and saw how deeply dark and ominous and out of place and alien these clouds were in the sky. Buried somewhere within the primitive part of my brain, I recognized something was amiss in this isolated pocket of our world. It must have fit the others in the group as well, as some of them stopped and stared into the sky, petrified and frozen in place, awaiting their demise. Others rushed to grab their loved ones and drag them to safety, and still others abandoned the group in utter terror, with nothing but the instinct of self-preservation dominating the otherwise civilized and evolved parts of their being. What comes next, I still see it whenever it storms. First, another eruption of lightning tore the sky asunder, nearly deafening me with its turbulent force. Then, in the electrical firebolt streaking across the sky, I saw the silhouette of a massive winged creature flying through the air. Each thrust of its colossal wings produced bolts of lightning crackling across the sky in all directions. I was glued to the spot, staring up at it through the tops of trees and branches in awe. As the creature circled the sky above, with each flash and crackle of lightning, the sky filled with the smaller versions of the beast surrounding their brood mother. This is what had spooked Buckley and all the other animals. They knew this creature was coming and they ran for their lives. Our exploding electronics were our warning. Nothing as deep-seated as animal instinct, but a warning nonetheless. After witnessing this, I am ashamed to admit that I gave in to the part of me hell-bent on self-preservation, and I started to run away from the woods. But unfortunately, many others had already run away, leaving behind those who tried to help their injured friends and family. If I had tried to help anyone, I would have likely joined them in death. As I ran into the woods, I saw someone running in front of me rise into the air, as if the invisible hand of God had plucked them from the ground. There wasn't any time to process what I had seen when I felt a sudden lurch beneath my feet, and then I too was airborne. My first crazed thought was to assume one of these creatures had swept me off the ground. However, as the world spun, I realized nothing held on to me. Instinctively, I reached out and tried to take a hold of the tree branch, but I couldn't get a grasp as they slipped through my hands, and I went further into the air. This happened at least a dozen more times until I finally grabbed a hold tightly to a branch and managed to pull myself to the trunk. I still felt a force of being pulled upward as I held on, and didn't let go until the whole thing was over and the creatures were gone. But I'm jumping ahead here. From my position, I had a clear view of what was happening. The others hadn't been as lucky as I was. They continued to float into the air, spinning around, screaming, and reaching out like a doomed astronaut untethered and floating into the vastness of outer space. It wasn't only the people either. There were deer, birds, and several other animals caught in the same trap. All of them floated through the air, high above the trees, and stopped their heavenly ascent at the same point. With one final screech from the brood mother, the smaller creatures circled through the air once and then swooped down to enjoy their meal, 
humans, animals, insects. Whatever managed to flow to that invisible line in the sky was consumed. The sound of their screeches and squawks amassed the screams. I turned my head away, holding it against the tree and tightening my grip on the tree trunk for dear life. I didn't know if these creatures would notice one of their snacks had gone missing. Maybe they would sweep down into the trees and I'd be done for. But of course, they didn't. I cannot guess how long I stayed in the tree, but once these screeches and squawks had stopped, I no longer heard any screams, and gravity felt as if it had returned, and I braved a look to the sky. It was clear of any monsters or dark, calamitous clouds. Nothing or no one floated in the air against the laws of gravity. The setting sun of dusk returned to its rightful place, dominating the sky and extinguishing the last remnants of light in the day. All had returned to normal except for my state of mind. I climbed on the tree, slowly and steadily, as my muscles ached. Once I had reached the ground, I sat down and allowed myself to rest. My mind was reeling. My body was thrashed. I closed my eyes for what felt like a minute or two and awakened to a paramedic shaking me. Moments later, I was carted off in an ambulance and treated for wounds that I had sustained while climbing down from the tree. There were tons of questions as to what happened afterward. The whole incident was chalked up to a random freak tornado happening in that area, and the tour group was wiped out in the resulting storm. According to authorities on the scene, there were dark clouds over that section of the woods, and they saw a massive cone touch down. As far as I was concerned, I let them tell whatever story they wanted to make it all go away. It's not like anyone would believe me anyway. Not long after the incident, I decided to quit being a park ranger and I moved to Philadelphia to live with some family for a while before getting back on my feet again. I couldn't stand the thought of being in the forest anymore after seeing what I saw. So, when it storms, I run for cover indoors and stay away from windows. I drown myself in alcohol then take a few extra Xanax to avoid the inevitable thoughts that creep into my mind at night before going to sleep. But in my nightmares, I'm always back to Yosemite. Buckley and I are on patrol and we see Greg coming towards us in need of help. My friends and I were allowed to choose how the world will end. Written by Weird Bryce Guy. I was hanging out at my friend Michael's house, just running a few casual games of MTG and watching some anime, when a small, darkly shimmering cloud appeared high above the table that we had been playing on, and a robe-clad figure descended from it. The pitch-black nimbus dwindled until it became a small, swirling typhoon that went on to encircle the figure's head, crowning him with its unwholesome black light. His robes were also dark and had the appearance of containing within the folds an array of stars amidst a gulf of infinite vastness. Standing atop the table, he was immensely tall and would have still dwarfed any of us had he appeared on the floor. There were four of us, not counting the figure, 
My friend Michael, his brother Oscar, and Lexi, my girlfriend, and we had been playing Two-Headed Dragon, a 2v2 variant of the game. But now there was a much realer supernatural horror on our hands. I have come to give you an ultimatum. For too long I have watched you wage war and bicker, and spitefully sabotage one another's progress. The infighting ends today. Mankind will change or be wiped out. The figure whose face was hidden amidst the tumult of the Stygian Typhoon Crown gazed down at us from atop his humble coffee table perch. Michael, wide-eyed and slack-jawed, then blurted out, Are you God? In response, the robed figure turned to him. Michael was seated behind him on the couch and said, in a booming, diabolically grave voice, No, but being omniscient, I'm sure he was aware of my intentions well before I even thought of them. So I think it's safe to say that my actions here will be pardoned, if they haven't been already. Michael, standing up from his seat on the couch, indignantly spat out the chips that he had been nervously chewing and said, Well, if you're not God, then why should we listen to you? Get out of my house. All of us cursed, knowing instantly that Michael had made an incredibly stupid and possibly even life-costing decision. The figure regarded him with an unsettlingly inscrutable expression for just a moment, and then, without warning, snapped two of his fingers, all of which were ringed by bands that held large and brilliant jewels. Michael's skin then began to shimmer, first whitely and then with a crimson labans, until every inch of him was aglow, from shoe to scalp, and a harsh red light. He became a featureless, blood-red figure, and then he vanished. But his screams, full of horror, continued to echo in the room for seconds after his departure. Turning back to Lexi and I, who both sat cross-legged on the floor, the figure spoke thus. Now, you must come up with a solution to mankind's inability to get along with itself, or the entire race will be annihilated. Quickly, I have other anthropocetal matters to attend to. Lexi looked at me expectantly, as if she thought that I would actually have a solution to the oldest issue of our species readily available. I turned to Oscar, who had been quiet the whole time, and I saw him practically buried in his favorite chair, with his arms wrapped around his dog. The dog, Lobo, was also frightened, and together the two looked almost comically pitiful. Why us? Why not pose the question to world leaders? My voice cracked and I kept my face turned away from Lexi so that she wouldn't see how red it got. The figure snorted and said, There are a handful of them, hundreds, if that, but there are billions of commoners. It is you all who would have to change, who would have to get over your habitual prejudices and see past the differences among you. So, I pose the question to you, the unremarkable many. I was more so terrified by the manner in which the insult was delivered than I was offended by the insult itself. 
The entity's eyes had seemed to flare with an even greater malignance for a brief moment, while distinguishing us as commoners, as if among his people or from his order of existence. Peons were regarded as little more than cattle, if allowed to live at all. Well... Thankfully, the figure's infinitely impatient voice was directed at Oscar this time, because I'm sure I would have peed myself if it had been thrown at me. Just then, Lobo sneezed. He's always had some kind of dog allergy right into Oscar's face. Instinctively forgetting for an instant the dire situation and the disappearance of his brother, Oscar called Lobo an idiot in a cute, playful way. And in response, Lobo licked Oscar right where he had sneezed in him. The interaction was amusing, and I would have laughed if there hadn't been a supernaturally lethal being standing atop the coffee table while absentmindedly rubbing Lobo's head. Oscar's eyes suddenly went wide, and he turned his attention to the cosmically sorcerous figure. I know how to make everyone get along. It's not that we're too different. It's that we're too similar. Color, genealogical origins, culture, they're all small variations when seen from a certain point of view. To get along, to really bond, there needs to be a huge difference between the two groups. And what's the oldest, strongest bond on earth? A man and his dog. We can't communicate through language, are wholly different species, and have no cultural middle ground. And yet dogs and humans share an unbreakable bond with one another. The mystic man's eyes narrowed, and he stepped down from the coffee table, though his feet had never touched the floor. Seeming to float on some invisible or immaterial substance, he stood before Oscar, arms folded across his chest. What then do you propose? Oscar, meeting the ultra-mundane warlock's fierce gaze, responded, Turn all but one race into dogs, or half of each distinct race into dogs or whatever fraction you deem appropriate. Let them keep their human intellect, but in all other aspects, make them dogs. You'll see how quickly everyone will get along then. Trust me. As if comprehending Oscar's proposition, Lobo let out a joyous little yelp and nuzzled Oscar's face with his perpetually wet nose. The sorcerer bolted upright, as if appalled by the suggestion, but he let out a great, thunderous, broom-shaking laugh. Lexi threw herself into my arms, just before I could throw myself into hers and together. We trembled as the room shook around us. When he finished, the sorcerer mounted the coffee table again and turned to us and said, what a wonderfully absurd idea. I will have to ruminate on this, but it is a very interesting proposition. One that I would think, if anything, be entertaining for a while. I'll consider it. If I come to approve of this ridiculous idea, it will be put into effect immediately. You needn't worry about me reappearing before you again. But if I decide not to go through with it, you likewise need not worry. I would destroy the world without your consultation. Until that fateful day, good luck. Wait, what about my brother? Oscar almost grabbed a hold of the sorcerer's cape as he did this, but 
but refrained from making contact at the last second, leaving his hands lingering near the ends of the fluttering robes. Ah, yes, the insolent one. Here, take him back. In a flash of bright red light, Michael reappeared on the couch, looking as if he had endured some near-eternal nightmare in the span of only a few moments. His hair was disheveled and even gray in some strands, and his clothes were in tatters, where they weren't blackly scorched, and wherever his skin showed, it was ashen and bruised. His eyes were unfocused, as if they stared across some vast, maddening vacancy. Haphazardly tossing Lobo into my lap, Oscar went over to his brother, who remained unresponsive, and cradled him in his arms. The warlock laughed, and then in a process similar to his arrival, vanished from the room. About two hours later, after we had brought the room back to a state of order, and did tried and failed to dismiss the gloom of these circumstances within a few more games of MTG, Michael suddenly snapped out of his shock-induced stupor and called out to us in a hoarse whisper. It was so terrible, you guys. So awful. Masker, who had let Michael sit alone in the recliner and joined us on the floor, went over to his brother and asked him what he was talking about. Michael turned to his brother, his face full of lingering pain and exasperation, and then he closed his eyes. But before Oscar could try and shake him awake, Michael spoke again slightly louder, in a slow, dreamlike way. I will now share his words, most of which I have managed to memorize, thanks to their simplicity and the languid, dreamlike quality of Michael's speech. I have added nothing of my own, and I'll allow these words to conclude my story. I'm not sure what to ultimately do with this information. None of us really are. But sharing it here is a start, I guess. I didn't know where I was. Couldn't remember who I was. One second, I had been standing there, looking at him. And the next, I was standing in some huge field. There was grass so tall that it came to my knees, but it wasn't green, or even brown, but clear, like huge crystal shards. But it moved like grass. I was able to pass through it without it shattering. The sky, it wasn't blue, or any other normal color. It was more of a molten silver, if that makes any sense. It bubbled and whirled and fumed all at once, and it was both dizzying and amazing to look at. The air felt lighter than usual, but I could breathe normally. There were trees or what I thought were trees, but they weren't normal either. Some moved, and I don't mean swayed. There wasn't a breeze, but moved or danced. I can't really explain it. I know that they were like trees. They were supposed to be trees. But they also danced. Moved with a kind of rhythm. The branches swung around and the leaves fluttered. All in tune to some song that I couldn't hear. There was a sense of cultivation. 
as if the trees and grasses had been planted centuries ago and were now in their prime of growth. The place, the dimension or whatever it was felt watched over, tended to, like a habitat or like a garden. I had the impression that there was something watching over it all, not necessarily me, but the garden in general, making little alterations here and there, none of which I could actually pinpoint. I walked around for a little while, until I heard a sound like something being repeatedly popped. Initially, I couldn't see anything but the grass and the trees for miles and miles, but then I turned around, instinctively feeling something emerge from behind me, and saw dozens, hundreds of other me's, rows upon rows of me, exact or near exact copies, walking aimlessly around. They didn't seem to be aware of each other, but they moved independently, and yet none of them bumped into one another, as if prevented from doing so by a weird counter-magnetism. It was super eerie. I would have never thought that seeing myself would frighten me, but I was scared and I backed away. But then I felt a force or a resistance, and turning around, I could see another me a few feet away, and hundreds more behind me, all moving around in states of confusion. I tried to sidestep the nearest me, and only managed to get around him, around the forest that distanced us, after making a huge arc. And even then, I couldn't move freely anymore, because other copies had crowded the space in the interim. There were now thousands in front and behind, and the place was quickly becoming overcrowded with doppelgangers all clueless like me kept from interacting by a weird, self-produced force or barrier. Eventually, it became so densely populated that the inhibiting force started to hurt, as it worked to keep us apart. I became unable to move, and with each second that passed, dozens more arrived. I was stuck in being relentlessly battered by the force. There was no sound. Even their cries were kept from reaching me and mine from them. I could only see them, could only watch as they were assaulted by the invisible element. We were packed together like sardines, and every new arrival caused a greater level of pain, until pain became the only thing I could comprehend. Somehow I was kept alive, even though it felt like I was being crushed on all sides by boulders, and there was a heat too, maybe born of the friction. I remember feeling occasional bursts of flame across my body, but the sheer pressure was far more agonizing. It felt like an eternity. I remember bleakly thinking to myself, I'm going to be here forever. The sky never changed, the grass, though I couldn't clearly see it, seemed to stay the same as well. But I knew all the while that cycle after cycle was passing, that I was experiencing the beginning of a hyperspeed eternity. And then, in an instant, I was back here again, had been returned without the use of any kind of portal or a spectral flare or anything. But my mind, a good part of it, is still back there, in that garden beyond time.
for the last hour. If that's how much time has passed, I can't really tell. I've been thinking about it. And I'm not sure they were copies of doppelgangers. I think a more accurate description would be iterations. Instances of my being, maybe. Me from other timelines. It's probably why I still feel like I'm back there. Suffering in that ever-increasing crowd. I may be here now. But I think I might also be there. Before, after. Temporally rooted in that messed up garden. I took a job as a fire lookout. We aren't alone in these woods. Written by Lighting Nations. There were four of us to start with, each perched in a remote watchtower. Our only contact with the outside world was through a ham radio and the guy who delivered beer and food every two weeks. To make sure none of us rolled an ankle or got mauled by a mountain lion while in patrol, we did two checks a day, one at 6am and one at 6pm. Things headed south right after Luke, the ranger in Tower 4, didn't report in for the morning check. Tower 4, come in. The station operator repeated, Do you read me? Over. No response. The checks were a big deal. Huge even. If any of us missed too many in a row, the station would deploy a team to make sure that nobody had died, or there'd be hell to pay for stirring a panic over nothing. Phil from Tower 1 said, Operator, the storm might be messing with Luke's signal. I can see it rolling in from the west. Over. And he wasn't kidding. When I woke up that morning, the far horizon mountains were gone, swallowed by black thunderclouds and a thick mist. Hitch from Tower 2 added in, Yeah, that or he had himself another celebration last evening. Over. I snorted. I had always liked Hitch. She had this nasally southern twang I dug. We had camped together earlier that year when a ten-year-old girl got lost in the woods. It took three days to find the poor kid. She turned up caked in dirt and delirious from drinking mud water. Hitch wasn't wrong, by the way. Luke had a nasty habit of missing checks and account of a hangover. Already he was on thin ice. I pushed the transceiver and said, Oh yeah, the rest of us had a party in Tower 4 last night, Hitch. And didn't you get the invite? Over. Sure, I did. Just didn't much want to share a cramped cabin with three horny losers who haven't showered in eight months. Over. I could hear the irritation in the operator's voice when he said, Alright, that's enough. Keep the channel open and we'll see if the signal clears up by this evening. Over and out. With the checks done, my time was on my own, and that was just how I liked it. After some coffee and breakfast, I threw a rifle over my shoulder and exited the cabin. My tower, Tower Number 3, stood on a small clearing surrounded by 50 miles of forest. There was a steel gate for keeping bears out two-thirds of the way down the column staircase, and surrounding the base was a ten-foot-high chain-link fence. To the south, a downward sloping trail led to the other towers. 
Most days, I would hike the path as far as the nearby lake, but since that morning, it would be hidden behind the fog. I trekked through the forest instead. About two miles out, after vaulting over the rotted trunk of a lodgepole pine, my left foot sunk into a puddle of ooze. I was standing in blood. As I dragged my boot through the dirt, I noticed a series of red stains leading up to a pine tree and looked up. A dead thing sagged around a crooked branch. I could make out tattered flesh and blue-purple guts, badly twisted out of shape and fluttering in the breeze. I wasn't sure what kind of animal it was, or it had been even. In all my years, I had never seen anything torn apart so viciously. I mean, heck, could a person have even done it? Sometimes we get a few crazies drifting through. In the 80s, a weird cult even took up residence. Sixteen folks lived out of a filthy camper van, parked down by the lake and worshipped an old native god which they claimed inhabited the forest. As I stood there open-jawed, blood dripped into my mouth, disgustingly warm against my tongue. The kill was fresh. That meant whatever had stashed the corpse couldn't be far away. I spat, my saliva coming out mostly pink. And then I rushed back to the tower, kicking up puffs of dust, painfully aware of how loud my feet sounded. There was a gust of wet air, followed by this eerie stillness. Every bird for miles around had stopped chirping all at once. Or maybe I only imagined that they had. And then there was a huge crash. Wood is splintering somewhere close. I ran fast trampling through saplings and vines. And even as I sprinted along like a man being haunted, a tranquil voice in the back of my mind insisted that there was nothing to worry about, that I just had an overactive imagination. But still, better get back to the tower as quickly as possible, just to be safe. I locked the fence and gate and I rushed into the cabin, where I rinsed out my mouth and splashed cold water across my face. And then, staring at my reflection, I started to laugh. What sort of range you get spooked by a dead animal? In the safety of my cabin, my paws crawled back down. I kicked my feet up and spent the next few hours trying not to picture the carcass. The operator came back over the radio a little after six, his transmission sounded faint and garbled, which wasn't unusual when conditions were so poor. Tower 1, report in. Over. No reply. I pictured Phil stumbling across tangled gods outside of his tower. Twenty seconds passed, and then my mental image shifted to Phil suspended from a tree, intestines swinging back and forth like a pendulum. Come to think of it, those remains had looked somewhat. Tower 1, are you there? Over. The operator's voice had moved past irritation and into concern. I considered mentioning the incident, but what would I have said? Sir, sir, I stumbled across a dead animal and almost emptied my bladder. Get a team of rangers out there, stat. Hitch would never let me live it down. Operator, this is Tower 2, Hitch said. 
Storm's getting worse. I can't even see Cabin 1 through my binoculars. I doubt old Phil will be getting much traction on his radio over here. A tightness in my chest that I hadn't even realized was there had eased off. Phil was fine. We had just hit a patch of a nasty weather, that was all. I realized the operator was waiting on me inside. Tower 3, reporting in, over. Mitch said, I'm busy daydreaming about me again, Tower 3. Face facts, ain't never gonna happen. Over. Come in, Tower 4, the operator said, ignoring her. You copy, over. He tried again, sounding considerably more anxious and was met with silence. We were two rangers down. It took the operator a few minutes to decide what to do next. Okay, let's see if the storm clears up by morning. If not, we'll send you folks to check all okays with Luke and Phil. Keep the channel open and in the meantime, over and out. Dang. He'd most likely send me to Tower 4 since I was the closest. They would only take an hour by jeep up between the mist and the corpse. I had started to feel a tad bit anxious. Scared even. Putting the thought out of my head, I threw in some music, made dinner, and had a few beers to take the edge off. And then I turned in early. With any luck, the storm would be easing up by morning. A little after midnight, I was woken by bumps and thuds outside. I lay absolutely still and listened carefully. The sound of heavy steps circled the tower. Even though I was safe up in the cabin, I slipped up my jacket and grabbed a rifle off the wall. Noises outside usually meant that a bear had sniffed out food and came to investigate. A quick warning shot would send it running. I flicked on the cabin lights and strained my neck to look down. Beneath me, the world was masked by heavy fog. It felt like being adrift at sea. A few minutes passed. The sounds circled me once, twice. All I could make out were a few isolated treetops. When it became clear that whatever was down there wouldn't wander off by itself, I stepped out onto the walkway, and the second that I did, the thing halted. A soft rain fell cold. There was a silhouette of a dark out of shape, shape, just beyond the fence. Powerful floodlights surrounded the base of the tower, but in truth, I was scared to flick them on, electing to fire blindly instead. And all the time it would take to blink, the shape tore into the forest. Pine trees rocked back and forth. I heard a ruffle of feathers, birds taking flight, eager to get the heck away from whatever was beneath them. I had never seen a bear move so fast before. Heck, I had never seen anything move that fast before. I waited 15 minutes, just to make sure that it didn't return. And then I went back inside and slept. Or tried to, even. The next morning, clouds the size of Wyoming had piled up overhead. Both Towers 1 and 4 had missed the checks again. Part of me wanted to mention my encounter but I could already hear Hitch's sarcastic response. Aw, the widow shadow spook you. I got a nightlight you can borrow. 
preempting my deployment to Tower 4, I said. Maybe we should wait and see if the weather clears up by midday. Over. How about you keep your trap shut and let me call the shots? The operator replied. He was panicked. Two rangers not reporting in. One for more than 24 hours. There would definitely be a few raised eyebrows back at the station, all right. By now, the entire skyline had been painted gray. All I could see through the window were raindrops the size of gumballs. It was a small miracle my radio still picked up a signal. Okay, Hitch. I think you can make it to Tower 1 and scope things out. Over. Sure can. She replied. Over. Perfect. In Tower 3, what's it like on your end? Think you can manage the drive out to 4. Over. Uh, I don't know if that's such a good idea, I said. Visibility isn't great. Over. Hitch, I cut in with. Operator, maybe I should swing by Tower 3 and drop off an emergency teddy bear. Over. For the first time in a long while, I wasn't enamored by Hitch's charm. Tower 3, could you make the dang drive? Yes or no? Over. The operator enunciated each word carefully like he was scolding a toddler. What was I supposed to say? An animal got close to my tower last night, so now I'm too busy hiding under my bedsheets. I sighed. Yeah, I can make it. Over. Alright then. Check the guys are okay and then report back as soon as you can. Over and out. Hanging up the transceiver, I could almost taste the blood again. But as scared as I was, I had an obligation to check on Luke. He might have been lying half-dead in a ditch, crying out for help. I slid my handgun into my holster, threw the rifle over my shoulder, and then descended the tower, hovering at the gate to study the clearing a few times. And then eventually, I hopped inside of the jeep. There was a booming roar of thunder as I started the engine. Lightning illuminated the fog briefly. And for just a moment, the rearview mirror was filled with a pair of red eyes, glowing like flashlights. I whipped around just in time to glimpse a bestial shape slipping into the haze. My heart jackhammered against my chest as I fumbled for the rifle. In the five minutes I kept the barrel pointed at the tree line, there were no sounds or signs of any movement, or my eyes playing tricks. I sped along the patched and bumpy trail, bouncing around in the seat, the suffocating canopy closing around me. As the vehicle struck over a ridge, thunder boomed again, and then the forest brightened up, revealing silhouettes darting between trees intruders. I slammed on the brakes so hard that my chest got thrown into the steering wheel, the world dissolved back into gloom before I could grab my pistol. I cracked the window and listened carefully. Silence. Was it a herd of deer, maybe? The noise of the jeep had probably spooked them. Forty minutes later, after following the trail up into the rocky hilltops, I reached Tower 4, tucked against the mouth of a sprawling mountain range that was completely blotted out. Pulling up, the headlights revealed a downed fence. My stomach contracted. 
Still no need to panic any more than I already was. Fences collapsed all the time, especially after storms. I stepped out of the jeep. The rain pounded hard and heavy, numbing my face, and the cutting breeze from the north was like a breath along at the back of my neck. With my rifle pointed across the slope until the very last second, I retreated toward the tower staircase. There, I leaned into every corner, taking stock of the next section before making a turn, not entirely sure what I expected to find. Another pile of remains, maybe. A third of the way up the steps, the gate lay wide open. That was a bad sign. Terrible, even. Keep the gate locked at all times. It's the first lesson in Park Ranger 101. Somebody would have to be in a heck of a rush to leave it open. But then again, this was Luke I was dealing with. Maybe he took the gate about as seriously as the checks. I closed and locked it behind me to make sure that nothing else could get into the tower or get out, whispered a voice in the back of my mind. If something besides Luke was waiting for me up in the cabin, I would be like a rat in a cage. I waved the thought aside and rounded another corner, and I heard a deep bellow echo through the mountains, gradually rising in volume. I gritted my teeth and kept climbing. From there, things only got worse. The cabin door was wide open and busted off its hinges. Luke, I shouted, my voice so high that I barely recognized it. I took a few steps forward, felt a glass crunch beneath my boot, and then stopped and slowly glanced around. At the far side of the cabin, the window was busted, exploded inward, and most of the equipment was tipped over on its side. Clearly, there had been a struggle but whatever had caused the glass to break was long gone. I felt slightly relieved until I remembered that I had come to check on Luke. A ranger had been missing for 24 hours and their tower was completely trashed. I had to call it in. At least now the station would send out a crew to do a search and rescue. The radio transceiver dangled over the edge of a table sitting askew. When I reached down to grab it, my eyes almost bulged out of their sockets. The transceiver was there, along with something that I didn't expect to see. It was a hand. Just a hand. Severed at the wrist and still clutching the transceiver. Suspended over a patch of floor crusted with blood. In my mind's eye, I could see Luke discovering a corpse. One wrapped around a tree trunk and flapping like a pile of tattered rags and then sprinting back to the tower so terrified that he forgot to close the gate. Or maybe something had chased him up the column staircase and there was no time. And then a half a second before he could put out a call for help, two red orbs the size of fists lit up the wall of gray beyond the window. There it was again, another bellow, much clearer now, coming from directly beneath the cabin. It was followed by a series of bumps and thuds, the sound of hard feet resonating against the staves. Next thing, there was a metallic clang which made the whole structure tremble. Whatever was down there had just rammed the gate. There was a second thud. I struggled to maintain balance as the light fixtures died. 
I plucked the hand off the transceiver, feeling a queasy mixture of disgust and terror, and failed to pick up a signal on any channel. There were no reinforcements coming to save the day. The creature charged one last time. Now blinded with sweat, my feet tangled together, and down I went. Would the steel bars hold out until the storm passed? Sure didn't seem like it. Trembling, I clambered up and pointed my rifle at the door. The only way I saw myself leaving Tower 4 was between a powerful set of jaws. I found several VHS tapes showing the documentation of a disturbing experiment written by Trash Tia. Deja vu. Noun. A feeling of already experiencing the present situation. A feeling of deja vu. I suppose you could call it that. There's no other word I can use to describe the sensation. It was like waking up from a trance. Waves of crushing water knocking the breath from my lungs. Bringing along the realization that I'd already been through this. What I was seeing, what was blurred in my vision, was red. It was dripping wet and cold on my skin, staining the tips of my fingers. When I risked to look down, it was spattered on the smooth white porcelain of the faucet. Droplets spotting the ground at my feet. It was the most mesmerizing shade, one that I could barely believe existed. I love all shades of red. They each bear a part of me, bringing me back to the memories of my childhood. Of sticky candy apples glued to a stick and paint staining the tips of my fingers. This one wasn't quite candy apple red, or even finger paint red. The color was sharp, attacking my senses and sending them into overdrive. I took two steady breaths and held up my palms in front of me, staring down at the decoration that could be likened to a surgeon's gloves mid-operation. I wasn't wearing gloves, though. In my rush, I had stupidly forgotten to put them on, so my hands had paid the price. The girls' bathroom had momentarily become my own personal canvas in my trance, and I was starting to realize that I had made a mistake. Maybe even a suspension-level mistake. I wasn't thinking about the possibility of getting suspended, or anything trivial, really. I was thinking about how familiar the red had felt on my hands, like it had been there before. And in that so-called before, it hadn't been quite so cold, dancing across my fingertips. I could feel it, practically sense it. The red had been warm. And it felt so real, almost like it belonged. Like it was a part of me, slicking my palms as sticky and wet. I didn't hear the door to the girl's bathroom open. If I did, I might have had a chance to try ducking into a stall, but instead, I was staring down at the faucet filled to the brim in front of me. Red-tinged water lapping around sparkling porcelain. I had to wash off the red. That was my first thought. I had to get it off my hands and fast. And yet my body was still frozen. Part of me liked the way that it painted me. 
I was its canvas. Not just the mirror in the faucet and the marble tile sticking to my bare soles. Me. I had never grown out of my liking for the color and that was evident when Mrs. Jarrett had walked in. And I was still frowning at my fingers which I could have sworn had been painted red before. Miss Jarrett had been my Spanish teacher my freshman year. I had an excuse in my head for her, but glimpsing trails of scarlet dripping down the faucet, as well as my hands which were held in the air, I could understand why she screamed. I could understand why she looked like she was going to faint. I had always wondered what it was like to have red hair. It had been mostly an experiment to see if I suited it, but I had maybe gone a little overboard with the dye. The empty tube was bobbing in the water like a bad joke. Kira Daly, Mrs. Jarrett spoke through her gritted teeth. She had always spoken a mixture of Spanish and English, mostly English in classes, and that hadn't changed four years later. It was like being 14 again, learning how to count to 20. Que diablos estas haciendo? Have you lost your mind? Looking at the teacher's horrified expression, I half wondered if I had in fact lost my mind. I was standing in my bra and jeans, my newly dyed hair hanging in my face, and the slick red between my fingers didn't feel like dye. It felt like something else. Something that I was trying not to think about, because I was sure two worlds existed in my head. Reality. The one I was standing in being lectured by my teacher and somewhere else, one that I couldn't reach, where someone's blood covered my hands. There was no way I could explain this to my teacher, that I had been controlled by one singular thought all day. Dire hair. It was still there, dormant, like a second mind, a second voice bound to mine. At least my stomach had stopped dancing. I had been putting up with my voice all day until the overwhelming urge was almost painful, taking over my spotty mind. It was the first thought that I had woke up to that morning. Dye your hair. It was on my lips and it choked in my throat. I had to swallow it down several times, but it was still there creeping into every part of me and entangling into every morsel of my being. It's not like I had spontaneous urges out of nowhere regularly, so I shook it off as a sickness. It was like my body was working against me. When I tried to push past it, it only got stronger, until I was grabbing a bottle of my mom's dye from the bathroom and slipping it to my backpack with trembling hands. Everything had seemed to make perfect sense until that morning, until the voice in my head was telling me to dye my hair. I was normal, and then I was being puppeteered by an entity hell-bent on submission. I had been battling nausea until I had taken the dive and used my last period to give myself a makeover. When I caught my reflection in the mirror, I had definitely managed to make myself over. I looked like a saw victim, riblets of dye trickling down my temple and smudging my hairline giving Scream Queen as Sydney Prescott to run for her money. It's, uh, it's die. I managed to finally choke out, plucking the empty tube from the basin and waving in the air. 
I grabbed for my t-shirt that I had dumped in my pack and pulled it on quickly, followed by my jacket. Now that Mrs. Jarrett was with me, and the world seemed a little more clear, the stink of ammonia started to burn my nose and throat. I was suddenly sickened by the state of myself, the last hour or so a blur in my mind. I remember trying to force down a soggy pasta lunch and falling asleep in English. So hot I got into the girl's bathroom. I know what it is, Mrs. Jared shrieked. After it felt like an eternity of awkward silence. When I had made myself look presentable, I opened my mouth to offer her some kind of explanation, which wasn't that I was losing my mind. And before I could speak, however, she held up her hand. No, I don't want to hear it. Get your bag and follow me. You're a senior, Kira. I expected this behavior from a child. Right. I managed to get out, shouldering my backpack. I gestured to the mass, panic twist in my gut. Should I, uh... This is what we have the janitor for, Kira. However, you will be formally apologizing to him tomorrow. Nodding, I gestured to myself. I should probably clean myself up. Mrs. Jarrett shook her head with a sigh, gesturing me out of the door. There's no need. I'll be doing that since you clearly do not know how to do it yourself. Now follow me. I did, glaring at my sneakers that I had managed to stain. Following the teacher out into the corridor, I was grateful that the student body was in class. The click-clack of the teacher's heels was a good anchor as I struggled to catch up with her. My thoughts a whirlwind. I was still thinking about the intense red on my hands and that feeling. Deja vu. Why had I had the sensation of it? The pooling, the glistening claret felt familiar. When we had reached her office, Mrs. Jarrett practically dragged me into her bathroom and rinsed my hair and then scrubbed my forehead with a wire brush until my skin burned. Her hands were rough, yanking and pulling until I was swallowing a cry. The water was boiling hot and when I tried to pull back, she only dunked my head further over the faucet. It was humiliating, yes, but by the time she had finished, I was mostly free of dye. The fogginess in my mind had mostly dispersed and I was left with burning cheeks and the intense desire to mount into the floor. Her office was fairly cozy, beanbags in place of chairs. I glimpsed Twitter open on her laptop. She lectured me on the importance of maintaining a good GPA and avoiding detention in a year which was detrimental to college applications. Though her words weren't quite registering as I sat in silence, staring at a framed picture of her cat on her desk. It's not like I didn't care about college. I just wasn't gung-ho about leaving town. I had my eyes set on community college. Weatherby Bay isn't a special town. There's nothing really keeping me here. But that's its charm, at least to me. In fact, I've never left. When I was a kid, I wanted to go on holiday, or at least leave town for the weekend. Mom, however, wasn't too ecstatic. And then she got really sick, so I've been caring for her for most of my life. If I go to community college, I'll be able to care for my mom at the same time. That's the plan, I guess. 
When my hair was dry, I tried to make my escape, muttering about getting to my last class. But she was insistent that I already missed too much of it and I could make it up in my own time. I was tying my hair into a ponytail when the teacher handed me a salmon-colored piece of paper. 3.30, she said, narrowed eyes flicking to the clock on the wall, which is in just under five minutes' time. If you do not attend, that's an automatic suspension. Do you understand, Kira? Are we going to be having this conversation again? Stuffing the detention slip in my jacket pocket, I shook my head. I wanted to tell her that I had to get home to change mom's sheets and make sure that she had eaten. But the teacher had a to-the-point firm tone that I couldn't argue with. No, Mrs. Jarrett. After humiliating me a little bit more, I was saved by the bell and made a quick getaway. Apparently, the piece of paper screwed up in my pocket wasn't enough. When I was pushing my way through crowds of kids leaking from classrooms, my phone buzzed, and I pulled it out of my pocket, glancing at the screen. Sure enough, there was a text reminding me, topping my notifications from the school's head office. Detention, 3.30pm, Mr. Sims Video Room, A136. I found the room easy. I vaguely remembered using video equipment a few years ago for a project that I never finished. When I pushed open the doors, I was greeted to the faint smell of body odor and Axe body spray. That was no doubt an attempt to hide it. There was a guy sitting on the edge of a desk at the front, his feet dangling over the edge, and a girl cross-legged on the floor. When I slumped into a chair, a chuckle caught me off guard. I turned to find the guy's gaze on me, lips pulled into a smile. Did you just get out of the shower? The girl's head snapped up, her high ponytail bobbing. I recognized her as Lizzie Matthews, valedictorian. I think that I had maybe spoken to her twice in my life. Once in kindergarten when I stole the chocolate milk and she yelled at me. And then freshman year when she had offered me a spot on the cheer squad. Lizzie rolled her eyes. Do you have a filter, Felix? She hissed. Her eyes flicked to me. Ignore him. I like it. It's not like he looks any better. Felix, the guy, scoffed. I never said that I didn't like it. I was just asking. Well, don't. Lizzie shot back. It's rude. The guy groaned, face planting into his lap. You're so sensitive. Lizzie's eyes sharpened. I'm what? All right. Mr. Sims walked in holding a worn cardboard box and dumped it on the desk, so forcefully that Lizzie jumped up and took a seat, and Felix lifted his head and shuffled back a little. I had never had Mr. Sims, and I was suddenly glad. The guy was intense. I've got work to do so you guys can help me with the little job that I have. He dug in the box and pulled out a worn case with no cover. This is a VHS tape. We're not stupid, Mr. Sims, Felix said. We know what a VHS tape is. The teacher scoffed. Well, I thought that too, until I found out that the three of you have had quite the afternoon avoiding class. While he spoke, Mr. Sims pulled out different tapes and sorted them into a pile on the desk. 
to turning the cafeteria into your very own private concert despite complaints, engaging in inappropriate behavior with another student in an empty classroom, and my personal favorite, his eyes snapped to me, dyeing your hair in the girls' bathroom, and almost giving the Spanish teacher a canary. He finished, throwing the empty box behind him. It hit the wall, and I wondered if he wanted to do the same to us. This is all behavior that I would expect from a freshman or even a middle schooler, not three seniors, one of which happening to be your class valedictorian. None of us spoke. I was pretty sure if we did, he would start throwing the tapes at us. Mr. Sims straightened up. Anyway, like I said, I have video projects to go through. He gestured to the pile of tapes. You're going to test all these out. It's a simple task. If they work in the player, put it in this pile, and if they don't, then this one. He gestured to both piles. If you need assistance, don't bother, because I'll be in my office. There's a thing called common sense, and I expect you to use it. With a last scowl, the teacher laughed. Not without slamming the door behind him, though. When he was gone, Lizzie jumped up and made her way over to the front desk. Felix, to my surprise, joined her. He grabbed the ancient television and the VHS player at the front of the classroom, pushing it into position. I stuck to Lizzie's side and we went through them. We fell into a routine that the three of us stuck to. I was in charge of inserting the tapes and pressing play, and Lizzie and Felix marked the boxes. The tapes were mostly old school projects and Baywatch episodes, which we found ourselves getting far too into. Lizzie and Felix had started to lose interest maybe half an hour into the task, and Lizzie's attention had turned to her phone, and Felix had started building towers out of the cases. I wasn't really paying attention when I grabbed another case, mindlessly pulling out the tape and inserting it into the machine. The TV static faded onto a bright blue screen, but this time it wasn't Baywatch or some ancient attempt at a zombie movie. This time, I was looking at a TV, with seven different options displayed in bright white that hurt my eyes. There wasn't a remote for the TV, so I used the buttons on the player. I was going through each option when Lizzie finally noticed, her eyes reflecting galvanic blue. The two of them were sitting together, their backs pressed against the wall while I was kneeling. I could understand the first two, they made sense, and they were made in the past. The last one, however, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. 1. 04-12-1994 2. 7-10-2004 3. 131-2022 Huh? Felix was frowning at the screen. That last one... Isn't it in like a day or two? Lizzie elbowed him. Well done, genius. He shoved her back. Hey, I was making an observation. His eyes glinted with amusement. What are we going to die in seven days? Don't say that, Lizzie hissed. The grudge scares me. I'm talking about the ring. Well, they're practically the same movie. Felix's lip curled. Lizzie, remind me to introduce you to Drifting Classroom. Is that a bug? You could say that. The girl looked confused and Felix shot me a knowing smile. 
It's nothing like the ring, trust me. In fact, it's actually a cute story. It's just about some kids who get stranded. Oh, you know, like Castaway. The girl curled her lip. I don't trust you. Why? What have I ever done to you? Well, you barfed chocolate cake all over my new dress. Felix's expression crumpled. That was kindergarten. Ignoring the two sparring, I selected the first date. The first shot was a high school corridor, grainy and discolored. It wasn't our school, I had noticed. The footage trembled as it delved through kids dressed in light blue denim and funky colored socks. The cameraman wasn't exactly careful with the camera, stumbling their way through the onslaught of kids. The sound was low but coherent. I could make out laughter and chatter from kids flying past in a dizzying deluge. From the way the camera zoomed in and out, its owner was searching for someone. Though it only managed to catch annoyed looking kids shooting the camera the finger, this went on for a while before the person behind the footage headed down another corridor with straying students dotted around. The footage shook as the camera holder made their way down the hallway, bumping into a crowd of football guys before seemingly finding its canvas or canvases. There was a girl and a guy talking to each other. The girl was pretty with dark red hair framing a heart-shaped face. I expected the camera shot to change, but instead it only intensified, zooming directly into the girl's face. She looked like she was crying and the guy was uncomfortable, like he wanted to console her. The camera zoomed further into the girl's eyes. Through the spotty picture, I could make out tears. Wow, Felix muttered. That's a little bit invasive. It didn't take long for the two to notice the camera. The girl folded her arms and opened her locker, digging inside. And the guy made his way over her. His expression had lit up, a smile curving on his lips. Hey, yo, Mikey, are we still hanging tonight? The guy flashed the camera, grin, and Lizzie squeaked. Don't say it, Felix muttered. Say what, she said defensively. You know what, Felix shot her a look. He'll be ancient now, he nudged me. Right, Kira. I didn't reply, my gaze glued to the screen. Hey, Tommy, another voice, the person behind the camera. Where are we meeting again? Oh, the old place, and don't tell me you've forgotten. Come on, Mikey, it was our spot as kids. Ah, oh, yeah, the camera guy, or Mikey, had paused. Is Poppy coming? Tommy's expression faltered. Uh, yeah, I think so. Would you guys break up? Mikey's voice crackled under static, the picture going fuzzy. Felix let out an exaggerated groan. Oh, come on, you don't ask a guy that. Shh, Lizzie hissed. Yeah, Tommy shrugged on screen, the picture wavering. Uh, I broke up with her. The camera briefly left Tommy's face, going back into the crowd and finding the girl once again. She was leaning against her locker, swiping at her eyes with her fist. It strayed on her for a moment before going back to Tommy. He sighed. I figured it was for the best, you know. I didn't want to lead her on. You weren't leading her on, Mikey murmured behind the camera. 
You told her the truth, right? Sure. Tommy's eyes found the ground, and he ran his hands through his hair. Of course I did, Matt. Mikey hummed. You didn't tell her, did you? The screen froze on Tommy's expression, and I knew exactly what he was going to say. The footage skipped, exploding into different hues of orange and green before settling on a black screen. At least I thought it was a black screen. Until something moved. And then a small light illuminating Tommy's face in the dark. It looked like they were in some sort of cave. Lizzie pointed it out, and I saw that she was right. The footage was grainy, but I could just make out the curved ceiling above and an alcove both Tommy and Mikey were heading through. Are you sure we should be down here? Mikey's voice shook slightly. He turned the camera around to clean the lens and we got a flash of his face. I could only make out sandy-colored hair. The rest of his face was too blurry to make out. How much further? Relax, Tommy chuckled. We came here all the time as kids. It's just down here. Well, in the daylight, Mikey said, though I could hear the smile in his voice. Remember when you fell in that pool? Tommy laughed. Yeah, and Poppy pulled me out. I was soaking. Oh, man. Mom grounded me for the rest of the summer. It was still fun. We played those nerdy board games that you're obsessed with. Okay, I'm going to pretend that you didn't just say that. Mikey chuckled. Why did you, uh, why did you bring Poppy again? The other boy turned to the camera and pulled a face. What do you mean? It's our hangout, remember? The three of us came down here all the time in middle school. He started walking again. I broke up with her, sure, but the two of us are still really good friends. You can't screw up that many years of good memories, right? Pops is like my other half. Mikey didn't reply, and the two continued delving into the dark. It got harder to see what was going on. All right. Tommy came to a standstill and turned to face the camera. How's this? He had a flashlight under his face. I was thinking that we could set up here. Poppy's bringing in snacks and a blanket. Perfect, Mikey said. The camera didn't move from his face. You look, uh, pretty good. I do. Tommy raised a brow. He reached up and pulled something out of his hair. Even with spiderwebs all over me. Yeah. Mikey's voice was shaking. I didn't know if it was him or the quality. Hey, do you want to go watch a movie sometime? There's a new Tarantino movie that I've been wanting to see for a while. Tommy smirked. You mean like just the two of us? Because where I go, Poppy goes. Oh, no, it's okay. Mikey said quickly, you can bring her too. Dude, Tommy rolled his eyes with a grin. I'm playing with you, that sounds fun. Mikey started to speak, though whatever he was going to say was drowned out by a sudden rumbling noise, the camera trembling. The picture went dark, though Tommy and Mikey's voices could still be heard. Holy crap, Tommy was yelling. Come and look at this. Hey, Poppy, don't touch it. More darkness. Before a sudden light. A mesmerizing blue light that lit up the cave. The camera and Mikey stumbled back. And he let out a cry before dropping it. 
an otherworldly screech rang out and I had to lower the volume. It felt like I was there, like it was crawling in my head too. The camera hit the ground and the footage violently shaking before going black. But Mikey's cries didn't stop. Tommy, hey, where did you guys go? What was that? Tommy? Poppy? The tape switched to a blinding white, no longer in the dark. This time, we were staring at starched white walls and a matching ceiling. It looked like a classroom, though there were no chairs and no desks. Only one chair and strapped to it was a disheveled-looking Tommy. He was bent over, his wrists strapped to the arms. His skin was pale, cheeks gaunt, eyes hollow. He wasn't smiling anymore. It looked like he had been drained of his energy, of everything he ever was. A voice startled me, and to my right, Felix and Lizzie let out twin breaths. It's the 14th of October, 1994, and the time is 5.40. The camera zoomed into Tommy and he groaned, staring in the chair. I recognized that voice. At the sound of the low murmur, Tommy lifted his head, peering through half-lidded eyes. I noticed blood caked under his nostrils. It took a moment for the boy to collect himself before his head snapped around drinking in the confines of the room. He lunged the ties, strapping him down with a cry. Mikey, he croaked, wide eyes finding the camera. What's going on? It was Mikey, though his voice was colder. He ignored Tommy, continuing in a low drawl. The subject's name is Thomas Westbrook, 16 years old, a suspected telekinetic or what I like to call a mover. The subject acquired these abilities from a Cromnia cave several days ago. After suffering flu-like symptoms and throwing up blood, the subject showed signs of precognition and the beginning signs of telekinesis. Further analysis is required. He paused. After being exposed to the entity myself, I have not yet been blessed. I mean cursed with what seemed to be abilities courtesy of evil. You're freaking kidding me, Tommy hissed. Is this some kind of sick joke? Oh, that's not important. Tell me what you did in gym. What? He let out a spluttered laugh. Is this about that thing? Because I didn't go near it. I swear I didn't. His lips twisted with pain. Mikey, hey... You know I didn't go near it, right? Mikey sighed. Tommy, just show me what you did. What I... what I did? The boy scoffed. Is this your dad? Let me go. In gym. Mikey spoke through gritted teeth. Tell me what you did yesterday in gym. That was nothing. Tommy grunted. Where's Poppy? Hmm? Mikey took a step forward and the boy tied to the chair lurched back, his eyes wide. Poppy! The room suddenly shook with the intensity of the boy's cry and I realized, a shiver sliding down my spine, that he was the one doing it. He was the one playing with the lights as they blinked on and off. When Tommy flexed his fingers under the restraints, there was a cry from behind the camera. 
a man. Following that, a sickening snapping sound. But the camera didn't leave Tommy's face. His eye movements flicking back and forth. Rivulets of red dripping down from his nose and chin. Mikey ignored the flash of intense red pooling at his feet and took another step towards the terrified boy. Hey, this is special effects, right? Felix's shaky voice pulled me back into reality for a moment, but he felt so far away. I couldn't look away. I had the will to turn off the tape and never look at it again, but I didn't. You idiot, Tommy shrieked, followed by what sounded like flesh being torn apart. There was a dull light in his eyes, and it was getting brighter and brighter. The same light from the cave. Something slammed into the camera, but I didn't see what it was. I only saw the light. That intense light taking over the footage. When the tape went black, it took me a disorienting moment to realize that it was finished. But I was already lunging forward and selecting the second date on the blue screen. 7-10-2004 None of us spoke. We just watched it. This time, the room was different. An older-looking Tommy, maybe in his mid-twenties, was strapped to a different chair. He looked barely recognizable. Half of his hair had been shaved off, his skin ghostly white, gone cheeks and chapped lips that looked like they were trying to speak, trying to mouth words that seemed to die inside of him. His eyes weren't quite in focus, and what looked like hospital scrubs barely clinging onto a skeletal figure that was malnourished. Tommy wasn't alone. Next to him, in the exact same position, was the pretty redhead from the first tape, Poppy. She looked like the shadow of her former self, her red hair and rat tails hanging in her face. I wanted to take notice of how pale she looked, how lifeless and hollow her eyes were, but all I could stare at was her stomach bulging out in front of her. Mikey had been cruel enough to restrict her pregnant belly too, and I felt a wave of nausea twisting my gut to the knots. I wanted to kill him. This boy, this man from years ago, I wanted him dead. It's been fun, right? Mikey's voice was older, and I could detect a smile despite his face being hidden. You two have been a great help, but as you can see, we won't be needing you anymore in, let's say, maybe two months. It's a shame, really. I like talking to you guys just like when we were kids. We were going to go to the movies. Tommy's voice was a whimper. We were going to... I was going to... He trailed off, the words dripping into nothing. You did this to me, he said. And then he said it again and again and again. You did this to me. You did this to me. You did this to me. You did this. I trusted you. I wanted... I don't know what I wanted... But you made sense, right? You made sense, so why? Why? The word hung in the air and the screen crackled with static. Why, Mikey? Oh, Thomas, Mikey murmured. Calm down. Poppy didn't move, only whimpering. Poppy. Tommy's voice cracked, his head hanging. How did you... How did you do it? 
Tommy's question hung in my mind for a moment. Before it made sense and I felt revulsion. I felt like I was going to be sick. Mikey cleared his throat. It's Michael, Thomas, he said. Dr. Weatherby, if you want. Dr. Weatherby, Tommy snorted, and some of his old self had returned, even if only for a moment. The room started to shake again, but he looked too weak to fight back. The boy let out a gravelly laugh. How about I rip out your spine, huh, Mikey? Oh, wait. You didn't have one to begin with. You're not the one with the power. You're just obsessed with it. If you touch Poppy or the kids, I'll kill you. Ha. Huh. Mikey clicked his tongue. You said children. From what I know, Poppy Anderson is pregnant with one child, and don't worry. Poppy is being treated with the utmost care. When he brought her in here to snap you out of it, he sighed. That's not like she's innocent after all. She slaughtered three nurses. It was Tommy laughing that time. After all this time, he spat out, you're just the same sniveling freak I took pity on in the playground. His head lifted, and that same light had taken over. I couldn't be afraid of it though. Not when the real monster was standing in front of him. We should have had this conversation when we were 16. So why not now, huh? Since you've been avoiding it. It's jealousy, right? That's what all this boils down to. You just can't stand that. You were there too that night. And yet nothing changed with you. You're just the same, unchanged. It must hurt to be ordinary, dude. Tommy cocked his head. Really, I sympathize with you. It won't change, you know. You'll live the rest of your life as an ordinary human, capable of nothing but bringing pain to others, and you'll die the same. How pathetic. Shut up, Mikey said. Oh, now it's coming out, Tommy growled. That's what you're scared of, being ordinary. That seemed to ignite something almost feral in Mikey. Take Miss Anderson. Mikey said quietly as people in white hurried to untie Poppy and pulled her to her feet. She could barely stand up, slumping between two guards. She managed a soft cry, but the guards had ignored her, dragging her away. The camera was dropped on the ground, and I saw feet striding towards the chair legs. I was going to show you one day. Mikey spoke softly, and I saw a figure in front of Tommy. I saw hands that grasp onto what was left of the guy's hair, tugging it so they were face to face, forehead to forehead. Mikey spoke through his teeth, through a sickening grin I could no longer call human. Right before we put you down like a dog, like the devil you are, I'm going to show you what we did to her, and when you see that, Tommy, you'll be begging for me to pull the trigger. That tape ended with Mikey gathering himself and stepping away. The footage exploded into static, but I could make out his voice. I'll see you soon, dude. Congratulations to you both, by the way. I'm not entirely sure why I did what I did next. It was like I was on autopilot, like that morning. When I found myself standing in the girls' bathroom, with scarlet hands and the heroin sensation of... Deja vu. 
Felix and Lizzie were silent when I pressed to play on the last eight. Their eyes were stuck to the screen. 129-2022 This time, we were looking at what looked like a hospital room or a doctor's surgery. There was an observation bed in sitting on it in the same pale blue hospital scrubs. This time, smeared with red, was Felix. He didn't look like the Felix sitting next to me. The kid with the snarky smile and playful eyes. He looked like a hollowed out version. Felix was sitting or rather swaying on the edge, his bare feet swinging in the air almost childlike. His skin looked thin, almost paper thin. His eyes were dark, barely focused on the camera, though he was squinting like he was struggling to stay awake. Below him was a sharp splatter of deep dark red that made me think of my own hands. Deja vu. The camera panned from Felix to the floor, to the sickening splash of crimson, an amalgamation of limbs, heads I recognized, halos of red and strawberry blonde, expressions of frozen in terror. It was my own, my own dead eyes staring up at the ceiling, my own severed neck entangled with Lizzie's. I was dead. God, someone must have been playing a trick, but no, it was me. I was seeing me, but not just one, multiple. I was seeing many versions of me and Lizzie spewed all over the floor like barf. Someone clapped, once and then again, and then a third time. Felix's head snapped up, but his eyes were still heavy. What is your name? That voice, I recognized it. Mikey, far older version, but the same man. The same sick of 194 and 04. Felix DeCroix. And what are you? Uh, I'm a devil. Felix droned. How oh, good, tell me, Felix. You saw this, didn't you? Yes. His voice was deadpan. I did. Felix, I thought dizzily. Why was he there? Why were we there? Then answer me this, the man ordered. What happens next? Mikey's words hung in the air and it looked like Felix was registering them. Cogs starting to turn in his head. I waited for him to reply. I waited for some kind of explanation to why I was dead on the floor. But there wasn't one. Like a bad joke, the tape exploded in the player and I snapped out of it snatching these smoking remnants with these sleeves of my jacket. Next to me, Felix and Lizzie didn't move. Hey, I waved my hands in front of them, struggling to breathe, struggling to speak. I leaned in close to Felix. Under his breath, tickled my nose. Felix, I hissed. Wake up. He did, blinking rapidly, and for a moment his eyes widened and I recognized a panic and fear. I saw that he was ready to start screaming, before his expression relaxed. Why are you two inches from my face? Lizzie sat up with a grin. Probably to see if that weird smell is you. It's like old socks. Felix rolled his eyes. Hey, don't lie, he shot back. You've had your gym shoes in your bag all day. I had to shake my head to make sure that I wasn't seeing things. 
hearing things. The tape was all that I could whisper. Felix frowned, his eyes going to what was left of the tape that I had managed to salvage. Oh, wow, he laughed. Okay, this actually wasn't our fault. Can we get in trouble for this? The last tape that we just watched, I was on my feet unsteady. Calm when I wasn't calm. That's six days from today and where, I mean, I was. You and I, Lizzie and Felix, he was. I trailed off when I noticed a shadow in the doorway. Lizzie was staring down at her lap and Felix's smile was too big. All right. Mr. Sims' voice made me jump. How's it going in here? Are you kids done yet? Felix stretched and stood up, reaching for his bag. Uh, yeah, I think so. I couldn't speak. I felt like I was going to be sick. The teacher nodded, though his gaze stayed on me. Kira, are you okay? Yeah, I said flatly. I think I'm coming down with something. He nodded. All right, well, don't bar from my classroom or you'll be in here tomorrow, too. When he left, so did the other two, grabbing their bags. I put the damaged tape between my books and shouldered my backpack, my head spinning. Kira. The teacher's voice startled me when I was heading down the stairs, my body trembling. Is everything okay? I walked faster. And I didn't stop until I was back at home. When I locked my door and turned around, Lizzie and Felix were standing in front of me. When I opened my mouth to speak, he shook his head, his eyes flicking to the ceiling. Hey, Kira, he said loudly. Are we still doing that group task? I figured I would make myself comfy. After taking in his words, I nodded shakily. Yeah, I said. Yeah, my room is upstairs. Lizzie led the way and then we were in my room. Felix's gaze flicked back and forth before he finally let out a breath. What? I started to say, and he shook his head, pressing a finger to his lips. Not yet. We waited for several moments before he finally nodded. I first noticed back in the classroom, cameras, not just in there, in the hallway too, Kira's hallway, even in the yard if you squint. Nice acting, he nodded at Lizzie, who grabbed a cushion and stuffed her face into it. Felix hummed. Yeah, I was waiting for that reaction. Leaning against the door, he tipped his head back and shut his eyes with a shaky sigh. What the heck did we just watch? I held the tape. We watch it again. Lizzie shook her head. Are you insane? It's toast. We argued like that for a while. Denial and then acceptance and the denial again. When the two of them left my house... I had a feeling that I wouldn't be speaking to them the next day. And I was right. I don't know if they're intentionally suppressing what they saw or if it was deliberate. The next day was normal. As normal as every other. I hugged my mom a little too tight. Felix didn't look at me in the hallway and Lizzie's smile was for a stranger. They've forgotten. And I remember... I remember that I'm going to die in five days. Felix is going to end up in that room, and I'm going to die. It makes me wonder, at the tapes, Tommy, Mikey, and Poppy, what happened to 1994? 
if we're a part of that too. What the heck is our connection? And if I find it, is there a way to change our fate? I hope you all enjoyed the stories that we provided for you today. As always, wherever you might be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always too, stay creepy.